I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Welcome to this podcast of The People's Pharmacy. You can find previous podcasts and more information on a range of health topics at peoplespharmacy.com. Until the late 20th century, pharmacists and physicians valued herbal medicines. What happened to this tradition? This is The People's Pharmacy with Terry and Joe Graydon. After the Second World War, conventional medicine embraced synthetic pharmaceuticals and dismissed botanical medicines. But the public wasn't ready to discard the healing traditions of herbalism. Herbs have become big business. Walk into any Whole Foods market, grocery store, or pharmacy, and you'll find a vast array of herbal products. We'll trace the evolution of this business from a tiny corner store in Sebastopol, California, to the giant global marketplace of the 21st century. Coming up on The People's Pharmacy, the roots of the herbal industry. In The People's Pharmacy Health Headlines... People who can't handle statins have a new alternative to lower their cholesterol. A large study of bempedoic acid published in April showed that this cholesterol-lowering drug can reduce heart attacks among people with established cardiovascular disease. A new analysis of more than 4,000 of the study volunteers who were at very high risk for heart disease but did not yet have it shows that bempedoic acid can reduce deaths and heart attacks for them. Follow-up over nearly 40 months revealed that 5.3% of those on the drug experienced a heart attack, stroke, coronary revascularization, or death from cardiovascular causes. Among those on placebo, that figure was 7.6%, yielding a relative risk reduction of 30%. The researchers calculate that 43 people need to take the medicine for that period of time, so that one person will avoid a bad outcome. The drug works differently from statins to reduce cholesterol and the inflammatory marker C-reactive protein. As a result, it does not seem to produce the muscle pain and weakness that keeps some people off statins. It does have side effects, however. More people taking bempedoic acid developed gout or gallstones compared to those on placebo. They also experienced increases in creatinine, uric acid, and liver enzymes. Bempedoic acid is prescribed under the brand name Nexlatol. An editorial accompanying the study report in JAMA concludes, quote, that although bempedoic acid is not a perfect substitute for a statin, it is a reasonable therapeutic choice for primary prevention of heart events in high-risk statin-intolerant patients. According to the CDC, 16 million adults will suffer from depression this year. Over a lifetime, one out of every six struggles with depression at some point. The primary treatment is a prescription antidepressant. Unfortunately, many people do not respond to traditional medications. In a study at Stanford, 27% of patients with depression did not improve on sertraline, venlafaxine, or escitalopram. The researchers identified these individuals as having a cognitive subtype of depression. They have trouble with memory, attention, self-control, and reflexes. 
According to these researchers, as many as 5.7 million people may be affected by this form of depression. Because most modern antidepressants work through the same mechanism, doctors don't have many options to help people with the cognitive subtype of depression. Prescription drug advertising on TV has become big business. In a typical spot, you see someone suffering. Then, after using the medication, with the brand name presented in large letters and possibly with a catchy tune, they begin to have a wonderful time. There's music and dancing and plenty of smiles, and often cute children or dogs as well. Meanwhile, the voiceover rattles rapidly through a long list of potential side effects. Now, the FDA has just released its final guidance on direct-to-consumer promotional labeling and advertisements. Instead of general statements about how wonderful a medicine is, drug companies are being encouraged to provide data about both benefits and risks. The FDA wants companies to provide information that's truthful and not misleading. It should be precise enough and presented in ways that the public can understand, so their perception of the advertised drug will be accurate. The only problem with this guidance is that it's voluntary. Every page of the document is marked with the headline, quote, contains non-binding recommendations. Which works better to lose weight, counting calories or restricting eating time? A new study recruited 90 obese adults and assigned them randomly to an 8-hour restricted eating period, caloric restriction, or no change. Both the people who cut their calories by 25% and those who ate only between noon and 8 p.m. consumed fewer calories and lost more pounds than those in the control group. There were no significant difference in the weight loss between those on the intermittent fasting regimen and those cutting their calories. Because individuals vary in their preferences, this study supports the use of either approach. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. And I'm Joe Graydon. Before there were high-powered pharmaceuticals, humans relied upon herbs for their medicines. Ancient Egyptians embalmed their pharaohs with natural spices such as cumin, thyme, and cinnamon. Physicians around the world used herbal medicines into the 20th century. Foxglove, for example, was the source of digitalis. That was the primary treatment for dropsy, an old-fashioned term for heart failure. Digoxin is no longer the drug of choice for heart failure, but it is still available, and there are times when it can be very helpful. To learn more about the history of herbal medicine and the roots of the herbal industry in the U.S., we turn to Rosemary Gladstar. She's been teaching, learning, and writing about herbs for more than 40 years. She's internationally renowned for her technical knowledge and stewardship in the global herbalist community. Rosemary has written 12 books and directs the in-depth home study course called The Science and Art of Herbalism. Her books include Herbal Healing for Women, Fire Cider, and Rosemary Gladstar's Medicinal Herbs, A Beginner's Guide. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy, Rosemary Gladstar. Hi, Terry. Thanks so much for inviting me. Rosemary, we would love to hear 
about your story with herbal medicine. We understand that you got interested in this whole topic thanks to your grandmother, an Armenian herbalist. Can you tell us a little bit about growing up in Sonoma County, California? Well, yeah. You know, I grew up on a dairy farm out in that beautiful area, and um, that had a huge influence on my life, you know, just growing up in nature and being surrounded by so many plants. And also growing up near my grandmother, she was, a, as you mentioned, an Armenian, and she was actually a survivor of the genocide. And she used to tell us when we were children growing up that it was her faith in God because she was very deeply religious and her knowledge of the plants that saved her life. And she meant that quite literally. So that had quite an impact, not only on myself, but actually all of my brothers and sisters. So yeah, I was one of those, I would say I was one of those lucky ones, both growing up on a dairy farm, but then also having such an incredibly powerful influence as a child in my life. Well, you know, I also grew up on a dairy farm in Pennsylvania. My grandfather was a pharmacist. Uh, I have his old-fashioned balance for weighing ingredients. He compounded herbal medicines in New York City in his pharmacy at the turn of the 20th century. And I'm, I'm just curious, when did manufactured pharmaceuticals replace herbal medicines? When did herbal medicines sort of become, you know, the stepchildren of modern medicine? I mean, pharmacy schools used to teach herbal medicines. Now very few do. What happened? Yeah, well, you know, I think actually where we saw the really biggest switch was around 1940. I mean, it was happening earlier, you know, in the early 1900s, we saw more and more, you know, isolated chemicals from plants being used as medicine. But it was really after the 1940s that we saw an enormous shift. In fact, the last eclectic medical school, which incorporated herbs into the their overall practices, closed in the 1930s. So, you know, even in the beginning of the 1900s, people were still using herbs. But it was after World War II that I really see there was an enormous shift, not just in the way medicine, but also the way people ate. There was We saw just such a huge influx of chemicals being put on the land, introduced into our food system, and then, of course, into the medicine. And it was really actually that world war that we saw herbal use fall way out of use and become, you know, kind of considered antiquated and not effective anymore. Um, and, you know, thankfully we're seeing that shift again where people are recognizing that, yes, modern medicine is a marvel in many ways, but it doesn't address all health issues. And some of these old traditional ways of treating illness have been effective for thousands of years and are still certainly effective today. So, yeah, I, I really see enormous shift in the way people approach medicine and food and, you know, even living on this land from about World War II on. And I think that had to do with there was a huge amount of chemicals being produced at that time, and those companies needed to find something to do with them, so they introduced them to our food and medical chain. Rosemary, it seems to me that somewhere around the 1970s, there was a bit of a shift. People were recognizing that what had happened in the 40s and the 50s wasn't all good. And there were some people who went, quote, back to the land. I believe, if my intelligence is correct, that you started an herbal store in 1972. Can you tell us about that, please? 
Oh, yeah. You know, I it was in the same county that I grew up in, actually the town that I grew up in. And I just, there was such a need and the beginning of an interest at that time in in herbal medicine and some of these traditional ways of treating. So I just, I don't know, I had this vision or this desire and I started a little herb store called Rosemary's Garden. And you're right, it was in 1972. And that herb store is actually still in existence on the main street of Sebastopol. It's been quite an institution. And I always say from the very, very first day I opened it, it was successful, but it was because at that time it was very small. It was like the size of a closet. But so, you know, if there were three or four people in the store, it looked busy. But um, yeah, it was kind of instantly popular because there was, as you mentioned, just the beginning of an interest, the beginning of a need and sort of a return to those natural medicines. So yeah, it was a, I served as a community herbalist and worked in that store for 18 years. What changes have you seen since then? Well, there's been a tremendous interest, right? We just see, mm-hmm. you know, at that time, the herbal industry was very small. There was very, very few products available. And, you know, just in the, the last few decades, we've just seen this uh, rising interest where we have an enormous case and there's herb stores, I think, in probably every major city and many small towns across the country. And really, literally thousands and thousands of people returning to, you know, natural medicines not necessarily turning away from modern medicine, but really looking for options and choices. And that I have to say, that's one of the beautiful things that I see is this sort of integration that we're witnessing, you know, where there's people are actually looking, you know, to choose the remedies that are most appropriate for the illnesses they have. And herbalism and, you know, natural treatments certainly fill in a large part of those treatments for people. Rosemary, you've been very much a part of this renewal movement. In fact, you've been called the mother hen of herbalism. <laughs> now, can you tell us, you know, how how did you end up achieving such recognition? I think it's just because I started when I was so young. There's really no other reason for it. You know, I just Um, I was very young. I was in my early 20s when I started to work. So it was right in the beginning of what we call the Renaissance or the renewal, a renewal of interest in herbal medicine. And I, you know, I was right there when it started and I was filled with visions and dreams and a lot of energy. So I just jumped in and did the work, you know, and it was, I have to say, it felt much more like play than work. I always feel that I was just answering the call of the plants, you know, and that's what I say to people. So um, it's not that I've done more than anybody else. <laughs> I have to laugh and say, it's the first time I've been ever heard myself called the mother hen. It's usually like the godmother or the grandmother of herbalism, which I laugh at too, because it's just a name that somebody gave me. And I'm grateful it's better than a lot of names that people could have called me. So I'm grateful for it. <laughs> now, can, can you tell us about um, the first gathering of herbalists? Oh, yeah. Well, I think that had such an influence on American herbalism. So, you know, I had gone to a little spiritual retreat that was hosted by Ram Dass, teacher, a man named Harry Das Baba. And I was so inspired. It was, you know, just on meditation and uh, spiritual work and just connecting with nature. And I thought, oh, we should do this for herbs. That was in 1974. And so I invited a few herbalists at that time and there weren't a lot of us practicing, so it was really easy to choose the teachers. And I hosted it, I hosted this gathering at a place called Rainbow End Ranch in Sonoma County. And it was instantly popular. Like that first weekend, we had 
50 people, which at that time was a really large number. And it was inspiring and fun and joyful and also an amazing exchange of energy. So then we just said, oh, we need to keep doing this. So we started doing them, you know, like four times a year. And they just, they grew unbelievably. Very soon we like two and 300 people coming. And the reason I think they were so influential in how American herbalism grew is because it was kind of from a grassroots movement, you know, from the earth upwards. So there was a lot of sharing, open heartedness, a lot of looking at traditional ways that herbalism was used and the very many different traditions from the Native American to the Ayurvedic and the Chinese tradition. Everybody was sharing knowledge together. And it's created like a, a family-like atmosphere, which has sort of permeated the way herbalism has grown in this country. And I think also one of the reasons why it's grown and rooted so deeply in the American public, because what I meant by ground up, it was it came from a place where people felt they could participate and make their own medicines and grow their own medicines, rather than from a perspective of it was only available for professionals to do, you know, like the medical society or clinical herbalists. We started a grassroots movement that acknowledged that this was a tradition that people could do in their homes. They could make their medicine. They could grow their medicine, you know, as well as honor the clinical herbalists and a more professional way of practicing. So that's a really, it's really re unique to world herbalism. And the way we've done it has been spreading out too, again, largely because of these events that bring people from all over the world to celebrate and learn and share about herbal medicine together. It's been quite wonderful, actually. <laughs> you are listening to Rosemary Gladstar, an internationally renowned herbalist known as the godmother of modern herbalism. She's the author of 12 books, including Rosemary Gladstar's Medicinal Herbs, A Beginner's Guide. Rosemary is also the director of The Science and Art of Herbalism, an in-depth home study course for thousands of students around the world. She founded the nonprofit organization United Plant Savers to promote the preservation of native North American medicinal plants. After the break, we'll hear how herbalism has grown from Rosemary's tiny store to a giant industry. We'll learn about some of Rosemary Gladstar's favorite herbs. What does she use to treat respiratory infections? Can you use elderberries or elderflowers to ease coughs and colds? One of her favorites is stinging nettle. Have you ever tried it? You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Gaia Herbs. For more than 30 years, Gaia Herbs has nurtured the connection between people and plants to deliver nature's vitality. Their full-spectrum formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial to get in the way. Learn more at GaiaHerbs.com. That's G-A-I-A Herbs.com. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. And I'm Joe Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is made possible in part by Gaia Herbs, focused on purity, potency, and transparency through its Meet Your Herbs platform tracing the origin and DNA of each product, 
connecting people, plants, and planet to create healing. More information at Gaia, G-A-I-A, herbs.com. Also by Cocovia Dietary Supplements. Cocoflavanol supplements that support cognitive and cardiovascular health. Made with proven concentrated flavanol extract. More information available at cocovia.com. During the late 20th century, most pharmacy schools stopped teaching pharmacognosy, the study of medicines derived from plants. Medical schools embraced modern synthetic pharmaceuticals, even though some potent drugs to treat cancer were initially derived from plants. Our guest, Rosemary Gladstar, has been engaged in education about herbs for over four decades. She's internationally renowned for her technical knowledge and stewardship in the global herbalist community. Rosemary has written 12 books and directs the in-depth home study course called The Science and Art of Herbalism. Rosemary, you were just describing the early days when there were meetings of, you know, 50, 100, 150 people. I must tell you, we recently attended Expo West in Anaheim, <laughs> California. This is very close to Disney World. There were thousands, maybe tens of thousands of people at this natural healing um, gathering. A lot of herbal companies were there. It has grown, not just exponentially, but compared to what you were starting with in the, in the 70s, it is now huge business. Yes, yes. That's so true. It has grown to be an enormous business. But the business aspect is just one aspect of herbalism, right? You know, there's also the healing aspect, which is not really a business. You know, it's really a, it's really a calling and a profession. So, but many, many of the herbalists who started out grew very successful herb businesses. I know myself, I, in my little herb store, I would make herbal formulas, right, and blends, and they grew into this enormous company, sort of something I could hardly imagine. So Traditional Medicinals was one of the little tiny companies that started in my herb store and grew to be a, a really, I think, one of the largest medicinal herb companies in the world. So it's been quite exciting to see it grow in that way as well. But I also really love just the grassrootsness, rootedness of it. You know, I love the fact that people can, you know, make these products and in their homes and, you know, use herbs as home remedies. It's really, to me, the, the most exciting aspect of herbalism. And so that's the part where you're still really quite focused. Is that right? Tell us a little bit more about the way you practice herbalism. Well, I still practice as a community herbalist. You know, I, I have had the good fortune to start a few companies that grew kind of beyond my largest, my biggest expectations. But my love of, of working with plants is really in, in that community, that old village herbalist tradition, which is just, you know, making the medicines and being available for people when they need help. I have practiced as in a more professional or clinical setting, but I find that I'm I'm just a, such a traditionalist at heart, you know, and and um, it's a model that I've really kind of amplified and taught people is that you know you can make these medicines, you can grow them, and you can treat all of the home ailments yourself. You know, things that your grandparents would have treated at home, you don't really need doctors for. But you know, of course, with more serious ailments, I always recommend that people see a clinical uh, or practicing herbalist or you know a naturopath for guidance. But, you know, for all of those home 
home everyday things. Those herbs just are marvelous for that. And so that's really been the way that I've kind of, especially in my older years that I practice now is, you know, I'm just available. Uh, for instance, when COVID hit, hit, I, you know, made little care packages and just went up and down my neighborhood and just gave them to people and let them know that, you know, if anything came up, I had an, a complete herbal apothecary and I'd be more than willing to help. And, you know, every Christmas I do the same thing. It's, you know, just that, that again, that kind of village herbalist ideas. I, I make these little gift packages for all my neighborhood. And, you know, I, I include all the traditional teas that are good for colds and coughs and sore throats and just put them together. And it just is a way of educating and teaching and also bringing herbs back into people's lives because, you know, it's not only on the healing aspect that herbs lift us up. They just bring so much joy. Plants bring joy into people's lives, right? In every way. I always say you don't see a grumpy gardener. You put them out in their gardens and they might get a little grumpy pulling weeds, but then those plants just make them happy. And on the deepest level, that's what herbs do for us. They lift us up. Now, Rosemary, you mentioned infections and and a Christmas herbal package. And I'm thinking to myself, well, people have been very, very concerned about catching something, whether it was COVID or whether it will be flu or whether it's just a common cold. I mean, Terry and I came down with something in March. It wasn't COVID. Human pneumovirus, something. Metanumovirus. We think. We don't know for sure. It was awful. It was just unbearable because we were coughing our, our lungs up for about six weeks. And so I'm thinking, well, we don't have anything in Western medicine to help us with a viral infection. You know, we do have some from flu medicines, but we don't have anything very effective. Well, what I did for this cough was I made a uh, a thyme syrup so that we could have oh, a wonderful. a thyme tea. And there's evidence that thyme actually helps against coughs. But what are some of your favorite herbal remedies for infection? Yeah. So I'm so glad that you mentioned thyme because it is a, one of those time-honored remedies. And then also, as Terry was saying, there's lots of scientific evidence about the thymol that's contained in it. So that is a good old-fashioned remedy. But I also love elder and elderberries have become so popular because they're a broad spectrum antiviral. So they're not just guarding the system against one type of virus. They really um, support the immune system in various ways and fight off various viruses. So just an elderberry is a food as well as a medicine. So it's a tonic that people can take, especially if they're prone to illnesses and wintertime infections, you know, to start taking a little tonic of that every day. And, and elderberry is so delicious, quite expensive to buy the syrups, but really quite inexpensive to make them yourself and so simple. And then of course, we have that wonderful herb echinacea, which is a broad spectrum antiviral, antimicrobial, antibacterial. So it's another herb, but it's more of a medicinal herb than elder. So not meant to be taken necessarily long term, but at the onset of any kind of infection or illness. So yeah, those are just a few of them that are common and readily available. And there's so many others. Let me ask you uh, actually about elder. Because I think that um, one of the things that we need to learn when we're using herbs is what part of the plant do you use? And one of the things I've done this this early summer is cut off some of the elderflowers and dry them because it's my understanding that 
that can be made into a tea against coughs and, and colds in the wintertime. It, am I mistaken? No, you know, and, and you are so right. You have to, you know, there are some basics you have to learn, like which parts are the most medicinal. And oftentimes different parts of the plants actually have different impacts on the body because of the chemical constituents in them. So with the elder blossoms, they are useful for colds, but primarily because they're a diaphoretic, which means that they help induce sweating. And as we know, our, you know, our skin is our largest organ of elimination. So when you have a bad cold or a cough, it's actually one of the mechanisms that we use to help get rid of it is to increase, you know, your sweating, your temperature a little bit. So that's what how elder works. It it's part of an old formula that was sometimes called the gypsy cold care, which contained peppermint, elder, and yarrow. And primarily they were working by as diaphoretics, you know, passing bacteria out through the skin by causing that sweating action to happen. Where the berries contain those antiviral and antimicrobial properties. So and together, they make a perfect remedy. Like, in fact, when we oftentimes think of elderberry syrup, right? But you can make an elderberry and use those dried flowers and make those make a nice syrup out of that. So you have kind of a full-spectrum cough remedy. Rosemary, I'd like to ask you about an herb that just fascinates me, and you're named after it. Rosemary, uh, you know, I, I, you know, how could you ever forget that song about rosemary and thyme? Parsley, parsley sage, rosemary and thyme. Yeah, all of those those wonderful herbs. What can you tell us about rosemary? Because we've we've heard a story from a physician who went to Italy and said that in this village, these folks live to over a hundred that that he spent time in. And they, most of them had amazing cognitive ability right into, into their centenarian uh, state. Well, they also stayed physically active. Absolutely. But in addition, the, the, the food they ate was highly spiced, and they were using a very potent rosemary, which he thought might be relevant. <laughs> All of that is true, Terry, I think. Um, yeah, rosemary is a powerful antioxidant, and it has a long history of being used for the memory. I think it's one of those herbs that actually does cross the brain-blood barrier. We have a few of them, like guadalcola is another. But rosemary has a you know long, long history of uh, increasing memory. And then as an antioxidant, it's just good for as an anti-inflammatory. And yeah, and you know the way that it's used today in small amounts and seasoning is not going to make an enormous difference. And people's livelihood or their memory, but you know, just upping the amount that you use, like half a teaspoon to a teaspoon of it a day, it makes a really nice tea, actually. It's very aromatic and refreshing. We don't usually think of it as a tea, but whenever I use rosemary, like in cooking, like when I'm making a, a chicken for my husband or something, a baked chicken, I practically cover the chicken in rosemary. It's really a rosemary-flavored chicken. I think people can use you know, more of these incredible spices in their cooking than they do. It just really adds so much flavor and also some incredible health benefits. I do want to add too, people always ask me if rosemary is actually my birth name, and it is. I, was, I wasn't named after the plant per se, but I was named after my two grandmothers, Rose and Mary. I always feel very fortunate to have that name. But um, yeah, rosemary has a lot of medicinal uses. It's also an anti-inflammatory. I mentioned that, and it's also used as an 
antiseptic. It has anti-infection fighting properties. So just a really, really good culinary, but also a very, very excellent medicine as well. Rosemary, I'd like to ask you about another herbal medicine that fascinates me, but doesn't often get very much attention, and that's something called nettle, or another one called stinging nettle, because uh, we've, we've heard a lot about this, but for some reason, it just hasn't gathered the spotlight the way things like turmeric have. So can you tell us a bit about nettle, please? Well, thank you for asking because it's my very favorite herb. I love nettle. And, you know, it actually is gaining the spotlight. It's creeping up there. It's going to be the the most recent herbal cover girl. But nettle is like an, it's an all-purpose herb. And just as a food, it's incredibly nutritious. So high in iron and calcium and trace minerals. In fact, when it's dehydrated, the amount of trace minerals in it is so powerful that it tastes like herbal salt. It's like really salty. But then as a medicine, it also is a major herb for several organ systems. So it's used for the liver, for any kind of digestive complaint or liver congestion. It's used for the reproductive system. It's an incredible herb for the respiratory system. So you just, and it's safe. There's really, aside from that sting, it has no harmful side effects. So people can use it in quite large amounts, you know, at, both as a food and as a medicine. So yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's like, really becoming an herb that it hasn't reached turmeric status yet or garlic status, but it's close behind. It's also widely available and incredibly sustainable to harvest. So, you know, there's no possibility of it ever becoming extinct or endangered because it just grows so prolifically when you find it. I love that herb. Thank you so much for asking about it, Joe. Well, I'm particularly interested in nettle for allergy symptoms. Can you tell us a bit about that, please? Yes. Well, you know, that was actually discovered quite by accident. There was a company called the Eclectic Institute that was located in Oregon, and they they did freeze-dried nettles. And the workers would sometimes just eat the nettle, those capsules because they knew they were really healthy and good for them. And it was noted that those people who were the helpers in the factory or in the uh, company were noticing that their allergies were just you know, so much better than they used to be. So the Eclectic Institute then started doing a lot of research. And that's really where that discovery was made. It's primarily on the freeze-dried nettle. The whole nettle helps as well. But really, I think the best results are with that freeze-dried nettle. And people have, not everyone, of course, but many, many people have had really good results using nettle to, especially for allergies, seasonal allergies, but also for allergies to animals and dust, etc. It's been proven very, very helpful. Rosemary, I'm a little bit concerned that so many people have hopped on the herbal bandwagon that there's there's a loss of credibility. And I guess what I mean by that is anybody can hang out their shingle and say, I'm an herbalist. Trust me, I know what I'm doing. Or they go into a health food store and they ask the clerk, well, what should I take for my high blood pressure or my kidney pain? And all of a sudden, people are, in a sense, practicing medicine without a license, and we have no idea about their credentials or their knowledge. How do you deal with that problem? Yeah, I know that is quite a problem, isn't it, today? And it's the same with going on the internet. You know, there's so much information and 
so much of it is bad information. You know, you have to really know your sources. So one of the things I always say is word of mouth, you know, like when you're looking for a creditable doctor, naturopath or herbalist or a mechanic, right, to fix your car, you know, you really ask, you want to ask your neighbors and, and people in the know. In this case, you might ask it, you know, uh, you know, even asking a naturopath if they have an herbalist that they would recommend or in the natural food store. Um, so it's really asking for references from people who know. And then there's also the American Herbalist Guild, wonderful organization that we have here in the United States. And they provide a list of practitioners throughout the United States. So that's also another good way. But I usually love word of mouth. You know, if, I, if I'm looking for a good source for something, I'm going to ask other people who might know, you know, either that they've gone to see them themselves or they know people have had and they've had good results. You also want to look at how long they've been studying and in practice and who they've studied with. I think that's also important. Yeah, so it is a little difficult, you know, like people can say all kinds of things these days and, you know, not have a lot of backing for that. So, uh, yeah. Rosemary Gladstar, thank you so much for talking with us on The People's Pharmacy today. Well, thank you. It's just been an honor to be here with both of you. I'm really grateful. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Rosemary Gladstar, an internationally renowned herbalist known as the godmother of modern herbalism. She's the author of 12 books and the director of The Science and Art of Herbalism, an in-depth home study course. She founded the nonprofit organization United Plant Savers, to promote the preservation of native North American medicinal plants. After the break, we'll speak with anthropologist Anne Armbrecht about her research on the business of botanicals. How has this business changed in the last few decades? Dr. Armbrecht cautions that lack of quality control in the U.S. means that some producers regard this country as a dumping ground for poor quality products. How can we learn where our herbs are coming from? and get a better sense of how they're produced. She'll also tell us about the Sustainable Herb Program of the American Botanical Council. You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Cocovia, maker of the most proven and concentrated flavanol extract in the market today, CocoPro Cocoa Extract. With the proven power of cocoa flavanols, Cocovia supplements support blood flow from head to toe. This National Physical Fitness and Sports Month, give your heart and brain 100% and support a healthy you with the most proven flavanol bioactive. Get 20% off your Cocovia order from May 8th through May 22nd using the discount code FITNESSPOD at Cocovia.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is made possible in part by Cocovia Dietary Supplements. 
Cocovia Memory Plus is formulated with 750 milligrams of cocoflavanols, a level clinically proven to improve three different types of memory and support brain function. More information at cocovia.com. And by Gaia Herbs. Their formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial, connecting people, plants, and planet to create healing. More information at Gaia, G-A-I-A, herbs.com. The Food and Drug Administration has challenges ensuring the quality of pharmaceuticals made in foreign countries. When it comes to herbal products, the agency doesn't even make an effort to monitor quality. As a result, consumers are on their own. To learn more about the herbal industry, we turn to Dr. Ann Armbrecht. She is the director of the Sustainable Herbs Program under the auspices of the American Botanical Council. She's a writer and anthropologist whose work explores the relationship between humans and the earth, most recently through her work with plants and plant medicine. She's the co-producer of the documentary Newman, The Nature of Plants, and the author of the award-winning ethnographic memoir Thin Places, A Pilgrimage Home, based on her research in Nepal. Her latest book is The Business of Botanicals, exploring the healing promise of plant medicines in a global industry. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy, Dr. Anne Armbrecht. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Dr. Armbrook, you're an anthropologist. So, Yay! Yes, I'm very familiar with anthropologists. <laughs> I happen to love one very much. But can you tell me, how, how did you get from anthropology to herbal medicine? Yes, good question. I think really the work I'm doing in herbal medicine now is really about the people. And so while I got here by way of the plants, I think it's really connecting with the stories of the people behind the plants. But it's also the herbalism that Rosemary Gladstar taught that I studied and really how she talks about the values at the heart of herbal medicine. And I'd come back from studying indigenous systems of uh, land management in Nepal, and I was struck by the similarities in how she talked about it. And so I wanted to learn more, and that really drew me into herbalism. Dr. Armbrecht, if we were to dial back a hundred years... This was a cottage industry. There, there were probably people in Nepal and all over the world, didn't much matter where you went, who were herbalists. They, they were the original, you know, people who were trying to come up with ways to help their family members, their friends, their community by using plants as medicines. That's changed. I mean, these days, herbal medicine is big business. So you've looked at the business of botanicals, and I'm just wondering if you can describe how it has changed over the last couple of decades and what it's like today compared to what it used to be. So in the late 1800s in the U.S., there were the eclectics were big source of plant medicines. And there was a quite robust trade of herbs. And along with that, there was a field that really paid attention to the quality. And that was often the clinicians who were using the herbs. They were either harvesting them directly or they were preparing the remedies or they had direct connection with how to tell whether the herbs had been harvested correctly 
whether the remedies were actually working because they had a direct connection with their their patients and things like that. And so I think one of the biggest differences is the disconnection between the practice and the production of herbs and the loss of knowledge around quality and quality, not just the quality control in a lab, because you know the, the best companies now really have that in rigorous ways, but really quality connected with sourcing the herbs. And that investing in knowing where herbs come from and that they're cared for along the way is the smartest way to ensure you're going to get a high quality product. And that's a big, you know, during the boom of herbal medicine in the late 70s and 80s, that, that wasn't there. That, and so especially in the U.S., it was known as the dumping ground for poor quality herbs from countries that really maintained that rigorous quality control and that knowledge that was passed down and that was connected with the industry. Dr. Armbrecht, how did you get interested in this business of botanicals? I think also what you've just said might really get a lot of people surprised that the uh, that the U.S. was seen as a dumping ground because we didn't have any quality control. So I got interested in it because I came back from Nepal and studied herbal medicine with Rosemary and was drawn in by, as I said, the values of at the heart of herbal medicine, really about a sense of right relationship with the earth, really like an ecological vision of healing. But then I discovered for most people, herbal medicine was a product in the shelf. And so my husband's a filmmaker. And so we co-produced a video really to celebrate the values at the heart of herbal medicine. And as we were sharing that film, I realized still for most people, herbs were a product in a shelf. And to reach them, I needed to understand the industry much more. And um, I did a Kickstarter campaign to tell the stories of the people and places behind the finished products. And my audience was really consumers and all of us trying to make sense in the supplement aisle of which of those products have that herbalists talk about the healing power of herbs along with the you know rigorous quality. But I wondered, how do I find that in the supplement aisle? And so at first the audience was consumers, but then I realized I really needed to understand the challenges that those sourcing herbs and working for these companies that are trying to do it right, that they face. And so that really took me into a deep dive into the industry itself. And Dr. Armbrecht, we have been studying generic drug quality for quite a long time, and we've actually been very disappointed because so many of our generic drugs now come from abroad. So it, it may be uh, Thailand, it might be China, it might be India. And the Food and Drug Administration has, in our opinion, um, not done as good a job as it could. And there have been many instances of fraud and there have been instances of contamination. And if the FDA can't oversee our pharmaceuticals, it seems even less interested or capable of overseeing the herbal medicines that end up in our pharmacies and our health food stores. So uh, I'm just sort of wondering from your perspective, how do we begin to, number one, care about quality? Number two, pay attention to you know where they're raised, how they're raised, how they get from a farm in Guatemala to a middleman, to eventually to the United States, 
And how do we know that they're not contaminated, that they don't have other ingredients that they shouldn't have? Give us a better sense of the process and the oversight. I think, so yes, it, it, you know, what we're asking is for an industry to regulate and take care of itself. And so that's a questionable thing. It really depends on the quality of the company and the integrity of that company. The, the things that can influence a company's practices are one, the vision, and as, as I said, the integrity of the founder and the employees. That's one thing. Another is all these companies really care about their consumers and their customers. And they all talk about, there's at these trade shows, all these reports on consumer demand and consumers caring about X, Y, and Z. And so the more all of us who buy herbal products ask companies questions, simple questions, where do your herbs come from? Are you buying certified organic? Organic isn't the end all answer to everything, but it does indicate that a company is willing to invest in sourcing and invest in traceability, invest in the kind of practices that are going to lead not only to a higher quality, but also what I think is equally important is less herbicides, pesticides, fungicides, polluting the soils and the water and the air that are impacting us all. So that's when some of those consumers can have a difference. And then there's organizations like American Botanical Council, where I work, and the, adulterant, the Botanical Adulterants Prevention Program, which is working with companies and producing documentation around what to raise awareness and educate everyone in, in the industry and consumers about adulter, potential adulterants and then lab guidance documents so that companies know how to look out for those. Dr. Armbrecht, I think all of our listeners are familiar with, um, how, how shall I describe this, greenhouse versus natural. And, and what I mean by that is sometimes if you buy a tomato in February in the supermarket, it looks red and it may be, you know, no spots, no blemishes, but it just doesn't much taste like a tomato. Or if you've ever gone hunting for wild strawberries or blackberries and you compare them to the strawberries that are grown in a greenhouse in a, a season that makes no sense, there's a, just a completely different taste than if you, you know, if you have a wild strawberry, which has just great flavor. Does the same concept hold for herbs? That's such a good question. And it's interesting because, yes, you know, there have been studies, plenty of studies to show that the soils and the, how much rain or how little rain and where it's growing on the north or south slope is in all traditional systems of medicine around the world. That's shown to in, impact how the herb is going to work. And that's been, can be measured in the lab with the marker compounds and things like that. I think in a way the challenge there becomes, we can taste the difference between a strawberry or a tomato, but very few of us have that sophisticated enough understanding of different quality herbs to be able to taste, you know, echinacea grown in a meadow and a biodiverse meadow versus in a monocrop, you know, that's been sprayed. And so I feel like that's a big challenge. 
Yeah, I think so. And in fact, I think our level of sophistication is such that most people wouldn't even um, make a distinction between the various parts of the plant. So echinacea root versus echinacea leaf versus echinacea blossom, they're, they're all different. They have different constituents, don't they? Yes. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, how important is it that we pay attention to what different parts of, of the plant are being offered to us as medicines when we don't have the sophistication ourselves to realize that, oh, stinging nettle root can be useful for some conditions, but stinging nettle leaves are what you want for other conditions. Right. I think, well, because I've studied herbal medicine and that, that's part of what you learn in studying. It's a different thing if you're just going to a supplement aisle and trying to sort out what to use for what condition. In terms of the trusting that the right, like if it's a root or the leaf that's to meet what the bottle claims it's going to be, I think that's a matter of finding companies that you trust and educating yourself about by using a practitioner, working with a practitioner who can give you that advice. There is one project that I'm working on right now with um, another organization to develop guidelines around like a buyer's guide for herbal products that includes information on quality as well as sourcing and sustainability to answer a lot of these questions. I wonder if you could tell us about the Sustainable Herb Program and what its um, mission is and how it's going about that. So I started this project really, you know, I was struck by so much conversation and discussion in the food industry and the those of us who eat food, asking questions about where food come, came from. And there wasn't that same conversation or awareness in the herb communities about the connection between the process, how things are grown and cultivated and processed and finished product. And so the first goal is really to make that connection clear. And that's through educational resources, through videos that we share on the website and blog posts and things like that. And, and that's really because I think to change a system, you need to see the system and understand it. And that's why I wrote my book and things like that. And then the second is providing tools for the industry and companies itself, themselves. It can be quite overwhelming to know where to begin. And so we've done that through these webinar series on a range of topics. And then a toolkit where I really just gathered a lot of resources from other sectors that are especially the food sector, but, you know, food, uh, clothing, like Patagonia and things like that in one place so that it's less overwhelming. And then along with that building learning communities um, where peer-to-peer -peer learning and exchanging ideas can happen among individuals in companies. And that's really the work that I'm most excited about right now is building these collaborative networks among companies to build relationships to deepen their understanding of the issues by learning from each other, and then by collaborating on specific projects. Dr. Armbrecht, do you have any advice for a consumer who wants to be able to figure out which herbal product on the shelf would be the right one to purchase? How can we, how can we distinguish between high-quality herbal products, such as some of the ones produced by some of the companies that 
you visited in, in the course of your travels and companies that perhaps are not paying as much attention to quality? It's a hard question. And I ask people in the industry that specifically around quality and they can't even really answer it, but I'll give it a try. So first is the cheapest is not the way to go. And, and I, how I think about that there is I don't buy a lot of herbal products because they're expensive, but when I need them, I buy from the companies that I have come to know, to trust that they are committed to sourcing as ethically and responsibly as they can. So I think that's one thing, thinking about quality versus quantity. And if you pay more for less, then it's more likely to have an effect. Um, another thing is I think certifications, if, if you don't know where to begin. So I think certifications and don't buy the cheapest thing and ask companies questions. Dr. Ann Armbrecht, thank you so much for talking with us on The People's Pharmacy today and for writing your eye-opening book, The Business of Botanicals. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Dr. Ann Armbrecht, Director of the Sustainable Herbs Program of the American Botanical Council. As a writer and anthropologist, she's curious about how humans relate to the earth and its plants. She's the co-producer of the documentary Newman, The Nature of Plants. Her latest book is The Business of Botanicals, exploring the healing promise of plant medicines in a global industry. Lynn Siegel produced today's show, Al Wadarski engineered, Dave Graydon edits our interviews, B.J. Lederman composed our theme music. This show is a co-production of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC, with The People's Pharmacy. The People's Pharmacy is made possible in part by Gaia Herbs. Their formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial. More information at Gaia, G-A-I-A, herbs.com. And by Cocovia Dietary Supplements. Cocovia Cardio Health is offered in both convenient capsule and powder formats. With each serving containing 500 milligrams of cocoflavanols to support heart health. More information at cocovia.com. Today's show is number 1,346. You can find it online at peoplespharmacy.com. That's where you can share your comments. Our interviews are available through your favorite podcast provider. You'll find the show on our website on Monday morning. At peoplespharmacy.com, you can sign up for our free online newsletter, to get the latest news about important health stories. In Durham, North Carolina, I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next week. Thank you for listening to the People's Pharmacy Podcast. It's an honor and a pleasure to bring you our award-winning program week in and week out. But producing and distributing this show as a free podcast takes time and costs money. If you like what we do and you'd like to help us continue to produce high-quality, independent healthcare journalism, please consider chipping in. All you have to do is go to peoplespharmacy.com slash donate. Whether it's just one time or a monthly donation, you can be part of the team that makes this show possible. Thank you for your continued loyalty and support. We couldn't make our show 
without you.